Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather peacefully uh, and together that we can sing songs to praise you as our minds are reminded of you and who you are and who we are. We pray, God, that your spirit will open our minds that we can understand and engage with your word and that you open our hearts that we can respond when we hear your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Saul is dead. The first king of Israel, the mighty king, has fallen in the battle of the Philistines. Meanwhile, David, the chosen one of God, returns victorious from his battle with the Amalekites. And so begins the book of 2 Samuel. Now, the story of King Saul is a very sad story because Saul started off as a, as a great king, a very potential king of Israel. But then Saul soon forget that God is God and he is not. And he disobeyed God's command. And because of that, God rejected him. In fact, feel the horror of Saul on the night before he dies, he knew that he is already as good as dead. Because this is what he heard from the Lord in our responsive reading. Let me read it to us. On that few hours, the night before Saul dies, this is what he heard. The Lord has departed from you and become your enemy. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and, has, and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. So although Saul did fell in the battle with the Philistines, he is in fact, and, and it is also true that he killed himself with his own sword in just one chapter before today, which is the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel. The truth is that Saul died because he was rejected by God. Saul died because he disobeyed God when God said, You are to bring judgment to the Amalekites. But Saul kept the king of the Amalekites alive. In fact, befriended him. So this is how Saul died. Because he disobeyed God and he kept the enemies of God alive. And so he did not represent God and so God rejected him. So in a sense, the fall of Saul is central upon the Amalekites, the enemies of God. So as we come back to today's passage, verse 1, you start to see the significance of this verse. Look at verse 1 again. This is what it says. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites. While Saul fell because of disobedience and his refusal to destroy the Amalekites, David returns alive and victorious from destroying the Amalekites. So in 2 Samuel verse 1, chapter 1 verse 1, we see the summary of the fall of the rejected king Saul and the rise of the chosen new king David. David who is the one that is known as the one who is after God's own heart to represent God. So this morning we begin our 2 Samuel series by looking at David and God's chosen king, and what we should know about the character of the 
king, of God's king. So let me say that again. The, the goal of today's um, passage is that we understand David, God's chosen king, and what we should know about the character of God's king. Now, why is it important to know the character of God's king? Um, because the truth is, if we want to approach God, we need to know the character of God, isn't it? Uh, it's like if you want to meet uh, someone who's important that will decide your future, be it your boss or your potential father-in-law, right? Or your prime minister. You better know the person that you're approaching that will affect your future. Um, I knew that when I was approaching, uh, asking my, my father-in-law for my wife's hand. I flew to uh, East Malaysia and I attempted to cook uh, black pepper crab, but that's the only time uh, after 10 years. I think Mother's Day I cooked the second time in 10 years. But, but you, 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 you try to know what your father-in-law likes um, so that because he decides your future. And you need to know God, the character of God, if you want to come to God's presence, if you want to approach Him. So this morning as we look at David, God's chosen king, we want to know what is the character of God's king. Because our life depends on it. So let me read. First, Second Samuel 1, verse 1 to 2 for us, and we'll look right into this passage. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor, to pay him homage. Now, with the permanent fall of King David in his final battle, the new era of David has begun Years of hiding from Saul is over. He is finally free from the one who is vent on killing him. The time for David to be king is at hand. The only problem is, David doesn't know that Saul is dead. Because between where David was in Ziklag and where King Saul fell in the mouth of Gil- Gilboa, is about 100 miles, 160 kilometers um, by foot. So as David returned to Ziklag victorious, he remained concerned about his people Israel. He remained concerned about his king Saul. And at that moment, a man who has traveled for three days from Saul's camp appeared before David. And this is what happened, verse 2 to verse 4. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. He came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The man fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. The news of Saul's defeat is made known to David by this man who came from Saul's camp. This stranger came in with this Ominous look with a torn shirt and dust on his head. This is the sign that culture that this person is grieving for something serious. So before David sees him, uh, before he opens his mouth, David sees this ominous look of this man, torn clothes and, and dust on his hair. And he announced the news. Israel is defeated. Saul is dead. The crown prince, Jonathan, is also dead. Here is the totally contrasting news, isn't it? From David returning victorious from a kind of impossible battle that he won. 
And there comes the news that Saul did not succeed. He's dead. Now while the news is clear, if you're a careful reader of this uh, passage, you'll notice that this man delivers the news in a very selective way. What he says was rather selective. The man does not speak of Saul's other sons that are dead. We say, Nick, the previous chapter, they name all the sons that are dead. But this man comes in, he just says, Saul is dead. His son, the crown priest, Jonathan, is also dead. Because this man knows the importance of the news. For King Saul has been trying to kill David, and Jonathan is the crown prince that comes after him. And this news absolutely shocked David. He asked immediately in verse 5, look at it, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the man said, I happened to be at Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band that was on his arm and I brought them here to you, my Lord. As this man delivers the details of the news, we start to realize there are some similarities with the actual story and some inconsistencies in the story uh, that is written in um, 1 Samuel 31. Let me read to us, in fact, part of Samuel, 1 Samuel 31 to see the real story written by the narrator who gives the account and then he writes what this man says. This is what 1 Samuel 31 says. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab and Milky Shuar. The battle grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Well, it sounds quite similar. And Saul, he didn't say to a, um, a Malachi, he said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows that are, that is the Philistines, will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons, his armor bearer, all his men died together on that day. Now this man's story is quite close enough to suggest perhaps he could have been an eyewitness on the actual day. But we quickly realize something which David would not know because he can't read 1 Samuel 31. is that this man is a liar. From the historical truth, Saul was wounded, he killed himself. And Saul's armor bearer, a trained soldier, perhaps one of his best, if you're a king, you get the best to be your armor bearer, isn't it? He verified that Saul was truly dead and he killed himself next to his master, out of loyalty. The armor bearer would never have killed himself if there's even a remote truth that maybe Saul was just fainting or haven't died. Uh, he's a trained soldier. And he's not going to give his life that easily unless his king is really dead. So as the man tells his story to David, we started to realize that this man must have come with agenda. The man who has traveled three days falling to the ground to pay David homage 
to bring the news of Saul and Jonathan's death, this man has an agenda. But the question then is, what is his agenda? Look at verse 10 with me. This man says, And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to you, my Lord. So this young man, instead of bringing Saul's crown and his band back to Saul's remaining family in the land of Israel, he traveled for three days to find David, telling him that he killed Saul with his own hands. The crown prince is dead. And now he presents David the crown and the band of the dead king. The young man, he's not here just to give David the news. He's here to tell David, you are now the king. He wants to be the first to be rewarded by the new king. A total opportunist. But you know what? If David was like any other man who wants to be king, he will reward this young man. Is, is there a better way to declare himself king? Because he didn't stain himself, his hands with the blood of the king and his son, the crown prince. And the crown is with him. And everybody knows that Saul is afraid of David because God has said David will be king. What better chance uh, than to do that and receive uh, the king's crown and his band? What an opportunity, brilliant opportunity, thanks to this young Israelite man. Wait, did I just say Israelite man? What did, what did the verse say? Look at verse 8. The young man says, I am an Amalekite. An Amalekite. Imagine the, the, the shock of, of, of David when he heard the, the word Amalekite. Because Amalekite, Amalekite, oh Amalekite. The Amalekite that caused the downfall of Saul and his life. And this Amalekite takes advantage of Saul in his death, stripping him of his kingship, even as he is a dead man, to bring it to David. The Amalekites, the enemies of God, whom Saul did not destroy, and David has just returned from verse 1, Killing the Amalekites. This Amalekite has presented kingship to David and he has no idea about who his king is. He has no idea who David is and who he is dealing with. A totally wrong way to kingship. The Amalekites' way to kingship, in fact the enemy's way of kingship, how the enemy of God always offers shortcut to God's promises. Didn't God say that you will be King David? Well, now take the crown and declare yourself king today. Saul is dead, the crown prince is dead. Take it, take it from my hands. I wonder if you have heard the voice of God's enemy before. That he always gives us the easy way. Since God promised this to you, I'll take it now. Isn't God the one that promised you the perfect body, wealth, glory, claim it today. Take it from my hands. How wrong and miscalculated this Amalekite has been. He does not know the character of God's true king. He does not know who his offering kingship is. Because there is a right way of kingship and there is a wrong way of kingship. And he is not getting any reward 
from the king. As I pause here, I want to tell you about another king. Another chosen king of God. Because he too was offered easy kingship by the enemy of God. Forget the hardship. Take, forget about the, the, the things that you have to go through. Take it from my hand. Since God has promised you, take the kingship from my hand. That king was a thousand years after David. King Jesus. Let me read to you his account for us in Matthew 4. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. You know, 1,000 years after King David, the enemy of God presents all the kingdom of the world to Jesus and invites him to take it from his hand. Jesus, didn't God say you have kingship? Now, here it is. Take it. How wrong are the enemies of God? How wrong is the Amalekite? How wrong is the devil? The true king of God is never in cahoot with God's enemy. The true king of God takes up kingship God's way and never man's way. When Saul falls in his dealing with God's enemy, David will succeed. And when David succeeds, he points us to the success of God's final king. And just as David rejects the Amalekite, so he points to Jesus who rejects the devil. God's king will take up God's kingship, God's way. So dear brothers and sisters, do we know the character of King Jesus? Do we know the character of God? Because Jesus, King Jesus, reveals God's character to us and he accepts no offering that comes from evil and selfish intent. You know, as a church, I think we, we need to be aware of this and must be very careful that we will never use the world's method of twisted truth to grow and build God's kingdom. If God has never promised us immediate health and wealth, may we never twist God's truth and use it to grow a church and then offer it to Jesus. We will not, we will not get the reward that we hope to get. That kind of growing, uh, we will have a horror as we will read next of what happens to Amalekite. And that's where we see the right way for God's king to respond on behalf of God. So let me read the rest from 11 to 16 of what happened next. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and they tore them, they moaned and they wept and they fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they have fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner and a Malachite, he answered. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called out one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. But David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your mouth testify against you when you say, I kill the Lord's anointed. Unlike the Amalekites' deceitful grief, in verse 2 he kind of come in, looks, but actually he wants reward, he wants David to kind of be king. David revealed a deep and true grief in verses 11 to 12. For God's fallen leader, for his faithful brother Jonathan, for the fallen Israelites and for the Israel who is now without a king. I don't think any of us or the Amalekites would expect that, right? I don't think the Amalekite himself, we, we, sh- we should have, 
that the Malachite would expect that this is David's response. Perhaps David should grieve, right, about Israel. But could he not rejoice at the death of his archenemy Saul? Because if the Amalekite for one moment thinks that David loves Saul, he wouldn't have added the line, and I killed Saul. How wrong he was. He died in his own life. And David's mourning reveals the king's deep reverence for God and the king's deep love for God's people. Well, because David knew as much as Saul that Saul is dead, as good as dead, but he fears God and he would not touch Saul. And this is the right way of God's king, to deeply revere God and to deeply love God's people. See how verse 12 puts it, the grief of David and his men is first to Saul, despite Saul's repeated attempts to kill David. And second, their grief goes to the crown prince, Jonathan. What is seen as an opponent of David by the Amalekite, David saw as a very dear brother. And thirdly, they grieve for Israel and the army of God because of their sufferings under their enemies. So first of all, the right way of God's king is to deeply revere God and to deeply love God's people. This is God's kind of king. Second, the right way of God's king is to execute judgment on God's behalf, something that Saul failed to do and he was rejected. I'm sure David did not miss the first time the young man said, I'm a Malachi in verse 8. He's probably already heard it. Once is more than enough. But he asked again, where are you from? And that man answered, I'm a son of a foreigner, an Amalekite. He wants to hear the young man's own confession. You know, scholars actually explain what does son of foreigner and Amalekite mean. It means something like this, that this young man, his ethnicity, he's born an Amalekite, but he lives as a foreigner among the Israelites. It's like foreign um, people with foreign visas and student pass in Singapore, right? or PRs. They, they are not kind of citizens there, but they, they reside there and they, they dwell there peacefully. They are allowed to dwell there. Perhaps that's the reason why he is even able to be near Saul uh, during the battle. He might even have been one of the soldiers or whatever. We don't know. But, but he has the peaceful and freedom to be there. Yet, although he lived amongst God's people, he does not have the heart of God's people. He does not have the loyalty to God. And so David declared his judgment. So the right way of God's king is to exercise righteous judgment on behalf of God. That's what God's king is meant to do. God's king is to exercise righteous judgment on behalf of God, which Saul failed to do when God commanded. But David knew at this point and he did it. Because we knew even Saul's armor bearer, he has the heart of Israelite. And he knows that Saul is the anointed one of God. But he is not afraid to die. He is afraid to kill his king. But not Amalekite. He lives among the Israelites. He does not have the blood of God's people. So the way of God's king is twofolded and is connected. On one hand, God's king deeply reveres God and deeply loves God's people. On the other hand, God's king exercises judgment on God's behalf. And God's king holds the godly love on one hand and the righteous judgment on the other. And this is the beginning of King David's journey towards kingship. 
And this points us to the new and true king to come a thousand years later. We'll read about David's failure later in Second Samuel. But what the best human king like David failed later on, God's ultimate king will succeed. And as pause here, right? I want to uh, let us be reminded of the character of God's king because, because that reflects the character of the God that we worship. God's king reveals love and justice. Love for God and God's people. Justice over unrighteousness. You know, for us Christians, as we serve God, as we serve King Jesus, do we reflect love? Do we reflect justice? In fact, as you and I think about our last week, maybe our last month, do people around us see that we fear God and love people? Do they see that we are just in our words and our actions? You know, when people interact with us in school or at work, uh, in the public or at home, do they see that we reflect our king's character? You know, for some of us who are in the workforce, it's easy to be nice and friendly right? when there's no pressure. When the pressure comes up, that's where you know who your true friends are. That's when you know who is righteous and who really loves people. When the pressure is down, everybody's loving. When the pressure comes up, will people see that you display the character of your king? Do I reflect that? And for those of us who are not Christians or who are still thinking about uh, being a Christian, the love and the justice are the character of God, isn't it? In fact, love and justice are clearly seen on the cross of Jesus. God is just, and so He must punish us for our wrong. But God is love, and He wants to love us and bring us to Him. How can He be both love and just when Christ dies on the cross and put these two together? So that the justice of God is met when Jesus died the death we we deserve. And God's love is displayed where He can welcome us into His family and His kingdom. So that is our God revealed in His King, Jesus, and here reflected in David. So this is the way of God's King to love and to judge. Finally, let us look at the last section of today's passage that reveals the heart, the heart of the King as he grieves over Saul and Jonathan. This is a song, a lament, or perhaps we can read it as a eulogy um, when we think about someone. But it reveals the heart of the new king. So look at it with me. As David grieves over the death of Saul and Jonathan, he starts to recall the good that Saul and Jonathan left behind. This eulogy reveals the heart of the new king as he grieves over the dead king Saul and his dear friend Jonathan. If you look through the whole thing, you will find that there is not a single bit that is negative about Saul. The only thing that is reflected in this whole song are all the good things about Saul and all the good things about Jonathan and all the good things that David and Israel have lost when they died. So look at verse 19. A gazelle lies slain on your hikes, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. You know, David, as he grieves and he rehearsed the horrors of the death of Saul and Jonathan, he felt a deep sense of loss. The greatness that was once in Israel is now no longer. The greatness that they all enjoyed is now no longer. As we pause here, many of us, some of us, can recognize or will recognize this deep sense 
of loss. Perhaps when we lose a loved one to death, how great the pain is. No, death, death casts a very strange light on the people we love. What, when death comes and it casts a light on the people we love, we start to grieve not because of the bad things they are. We start to think about the good things that we can no longer have. That's what, whenever you go to a funeral, that's what people talk about, right? They think about all the good things. Death has a strange way of casting a light uh, on the people that we love. We don't grieve about the bad things. We grieve about the good things that we have lost. And this is how David felt. It comes right out of his heart. He's grieving for the good that he misses, even in Saul and Jonathan. So grieved was David that he said in verse 20, look at verse 20, he says, Tell him not to Gath, proclaim him not to Ashkelon. These are the places of the Philistines. Paul doesn't want Saul and Jonathan's death to be announced to the Philistines. But, but the reality is, that's impossible, isn't it? They are probably celebrating a drunk already, celebrating about the death of Saul. But what this is saying when so, uh, David writes this is, that he cannot bear to hear the rejoicing of the Philistines. Why Gath? Gath is one end of the land. You know where is Gath? David is familiar with Gath. Gath is the home of Goliath. When the first success of the Philistine happened, Gath was the home of Goliath in 1 Samuel, um, if we look at it. And where is Ashkelon? Ashkelon is the opposite of the land of Philistine. It's kind of, it means the whole land of Philistine. And, and David says, I don't want to hear any rejoicing from there. I can't bear it. How great is my grief. And he continues with his grief. Look at verse 21. He says, May Mount Gilboa, where Saul fell, never dew or never rain. You know, so deep was David's grief that he cannot imagine life on Mount Gilboa continues as if nothing happens. You know, David's pain is intensified by the fact that the world carries on as if nothing happens. But to David, something catastrophic has happened. God's anointed has died. This is how David felt about Saul and Jonathan. But you know what? Saul's, uh, David's words sometimes echoes what we feel. When we lose a loved one, and the world carries on as usual. Your company goes on as usual. People live as usual. You said, something is not right. This shouldn't be. My loved one shouldn't have left and the world ignores it as if it didn't happen. That was how David felt. But even more so, the heart of David over Saul and Jonathan actually reflects the heart of God. For God does not desire the death of those he have created in his own image. God does not delight in the death of humans because death was never meant to be natural when he created humans. Look at what Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. He says this in 1 Timothy, God our Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. In the same manner, Apostle Peter says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some Understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
No, God grieves that human created his own image might perish and he wants us to repent, to come back to him. And so this is the heart of God and this is the heart of King Jesus when he came and this is the heart reflected in David's song. So the rest of the lament from 22 to 27, Paul draw, uh, David draws the people of Israel to remember the greatness of Saul and Jonathan and to weep for Saul because this is the heart of God's king. Finally, let us look at verse 25 to 27 as David's heart goes out to his dear friend and brother Jonathan. Let me read this to you um, as the last part of this um, lament. How great, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. You know, the whole lament of David is about Saul and Jonathan, Saul and Jonathan. But at the end, what he really wants to bring out is his cry and grief over his, the death of his dear friend, Jonathan. Because this is the truth is this, between Jonathan and David, there was never a contention of kingship. There was never a fight over who will be king because Jonathan loved David as himself. That's in 1 Samuel 18. But Jonathan's love for David was founded on Jonathan's love for God. Let me read to you the last encounter between David and Jonathan. Uh, and let me see what happened uh, in their conversation. And then we realize how misjudged, uh, misjudged the Amalekite man has been about Jonathan and David. First Samuel 23. This was when Saul was still alive. David learned that Saul had come to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. And I, the crown prince, will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. In the final lament of David, it was ultimately over Jonathan. For not only is Jonathan like a dear brother, Jonathan is the one who strengthens David and acknowledges David to be the king, even though he was the crown prince. But you know what? There's an irony in this lament. As, Paul's, uh, as David says, how the mighty have fallen. For one day, David too will fall. He will be amongst the mighty that has fallen. There will only be one king who will never fall and remain for fallen. And that king is our King Jesus, which David is pointing towards in Second Samuel as we go on uh, in our series. So as we look at David, God's chosen king, and what we should know about the character of God's king, let us give thanks to God that he has given David. He has shown us Jesus that we can know him. So if we are God's people, that we can know how to respond to our King. If we are not, God's invitation is for you, that you can come to Him. 
because He has come to us. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of David and the character of your king revealed in this account. Thank you that he followed your way and not the world's way, that he loves you and loves your people and carries out your justice. Because we know that our King Jesus did the same and even more. Father, we thank you as we read about the grief of King David because it reminds us of the grief of our Lord Jesus Christ and of you, that you do not want us to be perished, but you want us to come to you. So help us to know your heart, dear God, Father, and help us to know you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.